Welcome to Gen Z Speaks, an international youth podcast brought to you by Gen Z Education. My name is Arden. And my name's Anisha. And we're your hosts. Gen Z Education is a youth-led nonprofit organization that is reinventing education. We provide interactive educational content that takes a new look at traditional approaches to education, involving everything from academics and storytelling to current events. Every episode, we provide you with content relevant to the youth, from interviewing experienced professionals and college admissions experts to discussing current events. Today, we're joined by Caroline Jaros, a strategic analyst at Hathaway Communications, who has been a powerful force behind several successful political campaigns in the past few years. Caroline, we're so glad to have you here today. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. So my name is Caroline, or you'll hear some people call me CJ as well. Um, And I am, like you said, I work in communications at a firm called Hathaway Communications. And I am also right now partner and head of people in comms for a firm called Sterling Strategy, which is a brand new uh, political fundraising firm that's looking to kind of, you know, revolutionize the way we do political fundraising, especially after such a crazy year last year. Um, I'm a Chicago native. I am now living in Washington, D.C. with my partner and my French bulldog puppy. I um, went to school in D.C. as well. I went to American, um, studied international studies, which obviously is not what I ended up doing, but um, loved it anyways. And yeah, I'm a my my big passion is actually just I'm the oldest of six kids. And so being a big sister is very natural to me. Um, and so I've loved kind of, you know, being a mentor and a big sister in a lot of ways to a lot of the young people who've worked in my campaign or my firm. And so I'm uh, I'm really excited to be here and, and talking. So, yeah, thank you. Well, that's wonderful. We're so happy to have you here. So jumping right into our first question, what age did you realize you wanted to start working in politics? Oh, gosh. Um, My first political campaign was when I was 15 years old, and it was actually for a Republican, which I know shocks a lot of people um, since I am now a, a Democrat and work for Democrats. But I just wanted to get involved, and politics was something that, um, you know, young people have a lot of roles and they don't always know about it. But to me, the more I, you know, worked on campaigns, the more I was talking with people, it just seemed like people wanted to give responsibility to young people. Um, and that really attracted uh, politics to me. And then I was from from 15 on was just working um, campaigns, fell in love with, you know, West Wing and all things DC. And then 2016 definitely changed things for me. And I knew I knew politics is really where I I wanted to not just have a passion and it was, you know, something that got me out of bed in the morning, but was also a good industry and a good career for me as well. That's great, because I know that a lot of people don't realize how young you can start a career like that, because it's really important to get involved young, because that's when you can make the most change. Um, Along with that, is there a specific political figure that inspired your interest in politics? I'm going to choose Nancy Pelosi, which I know is uh, a a popular one. Um, But to me, I think for so long, she was the only woman at so many of the tables. And, you know, there's a great photo of her and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg back in some, you know, House committee meeting way back when. And they are, I think, like the only two women in the entire space. And uh, seeing her just 
you know, kind of break barriers. And as a Catholic woman, I'm a Catholic as well. And today's Ash Wednesday, our big holiday. And, and uh, you know, she's always been a figure to me because she's very similar in, in her um, in her family life. And so, and she was just a badass, excuse my language, but she really is. And, and so uh, she's definitely inspired me a lot. Yeah, I think she's so much so that like still youth today are inspired by her and um, her impact has definitely been a, a far reaching one. Um, so can you tell us a bit about like what a day in your life at Hadaway Communications and Sterling um, Industries is like and how you kind of tie in your passion for politics into those jobs? They're both crazy days, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, and they happen at the same time. I'm working like two jobs from 7 a.m. to midnight, which is fun. Um, but yeah, and uh, I take the puppy on a walk. That's the first thing I do every morning because you know, a lot of people wake up and the first thing they do is look at their phone. And to me, that was really tough because especially when the news was getting crazy, it was tough to start off um, looking at my phone. So I've tried not to do that in 2021. And we walked the dog. Um, and from there, it's a lot of answering emails. If I'm being honest, it's just I'm glued to my my email app. But I get to do a lot of interviewing and hiring for Sterling. We are a newer firm. And so we're still building out our staff. And to me, that that was a great a great role for me was hiring because I think we can do a lot to hire different and hire uh, smarter. And, you know, I have a very, I have an all women, well, yeah, an all women kick, like amazing staff that work for me on my people and comms side. Um, and that is something I'm really proud of. And just, uh, you know, getting to talk to young people and hire them is always fun. And then I do some onboardings, do a lot of consulting calls and hear from candidates and just listen to them vent or complain about whatever it is. That's kind of a lot of the role of a consultant is just, you know, being a little bit of a therapist as well sometimes. Um, and then, you know, just other meetings and um, whatever's going on in DC during the day, there's always something crazy. And, um, and the news is always on in the background, that's for sure. Um, whether it's on my phone or on the TV or on my, my boyfriend's phone, you know, we're always watching the news. Um, and our new thing is we try to watch a different news station every day. Um, we try local, we try national. So we're, we're always listening to the news and, and seeing what is new in politics and, and on the local level and the national level. So yeah, that's a little bit, sounds a lot tamer than what I feel like my days actually are, but um, that's, that's the gist of it. It sounds like your your daily job has a lot to do with your campaign management. How would you say, like, what skills do you have from your jobs that translate over to your campaign management? Sure. Um, I think the, uh, the, the skill of managing, which is, uh, you know, whether it's managing your time, managing other people's times, managing up if you have, you know, people above you that you need to work with, um, managing expectations and candidates, just a lot of managing. Um, and that means, you know, knowing what I, what I can, what I do know, what I don't know. Um, and that skill of, of managing also comes from being the oldest of six kids and, you know, getting people out the door on time to get to anywhere. Um, and the other skill is just people skills and, uh, people skills. One of the beauties of working on campaigns is getting to know so many different people from so many different places and learning how to deal with, kind of the various situations that'll arise. And on campaigns, it's always something crazy. Um, with clients, it's always something crazy. And so really just understanding people, listening to them, being a good listener is so important in people skills. 
Um, and just, you know, always, always being an ear or a shoulder for someone to vent or cry on. Um, that's, I know that's, that's not like the technical skills, but I think those are the most important skills that, um, that people can learn is just how to deal with people. And um, also to remember that everyone's got something else going on and to, you know, have a little bit of empathy and understanding that uh, people have, people have their own lives going on. And um, that's been a big part of my job, especially with the pandemic is, you know, working with young people who have a million things going on and really just uh, being open to listen and, and to help them support them in any way that I can. Yes, definitely. So you mentioned the pandemic and that's been like, obviously taking over not only like everyday life but it's had like an impact especially on the election and all so you've experienced you've had a lot of experience with campaigning but this year presented some very unique challenges so how did you like how did you apply your skills at adapting to new changes especially in the midst of the global pandemic sure it was uh not easy at first and it was a lot of kind of trial and error but one of my favorite things to come out to come out of the pandemic was the fact that my intern program was no longer just California. I was working on a California race and, you know, we were building an intern program and because of the pandemic, it could be, it was, it was remote, it was virtual. And so we could have people from all over the U S and people from outside of the country. Um, and I had roughly 270 interns come through the program from March until November. And it was, awesome because I don't think I would have had that many people if we were, you know, in person. And so that was one of the adaptations that I was really kind of grateful for, um, was that young people were, you know, their parents are driving them crazy and they needed something to do. And the campaign we could do remotely and um, offered an experience for young people to get involved in campaigns, especially in such a crazy year and especially in such an important election year as well. Um, and then other than that, you know, just uh, learning how to how to adapt to being on, on virtual screens like this. And that was really, really tricky, especially with candidates who, you know, really, they love shaking hands with people. They love talking to people one-on-one. -on -one. And so to tell them that they can't go to events um, was really tricky. And how do you fundraise? You know, how do you canvas during a campaign? We had to be uh, really smart and really savvy about all of that. But I was fortunate to have um, a lot of, you know, people who were young, who just were innovative and had bright ideas. And um, I think the, the energy that they had was kind of like, you know, camp counselor orientation leader, PTA mom energy, where they were just, you know, enthusiastic because they knew other people were, were kind of drained a little bit. And so having to kind of up the enthusiasm and the facial expressions and all of that um, were, were little things that we had to adapt to in the pandemic. But definitely the, the chance to have people from all over the country and young people who I never would have met um, was, was definitely a highlight for me. Yeah, definitely. And I even got some experience myself with some of the political campaigns that had been going on in the midst of quarantine. So I busied myself with like stuff like phone banking and and other like political strategies of campaigning. But that arises a question that I noticed that a lot of fellow Gen Z friends had as well. They often asked like, how does phone banking work? And is it really that effective? Because we noticed that um, and I think this is especially due to the growing obsoleteness of like the home telephone and the, like the evolution of technology. So what words do you have to say about how like camp your campaign strategies have changed? Yeah, it, it is tricky. Nobody answers their home phone anymore. And people are a lot more suspicious of numbers they don't recognize on their phones as well. And the 
kudos to the field sides for campaigns who, you know, had to take canvassing as well and turn that virtually. But when it comes to phone banking, we we have to adapt in and see what other things are out there like email and text and Twitter DMs and, you know, using social media really smartly. And uh, digital programs are now the, the most important thing besides, you know, call time that a candidate does. And call time is when a candidate is making calls to someone. And, and, um, and so digital programs are, you know, that's, that's really what we've had to, to rely on. And um, if you've ever, you know, gotten a DM from a candidate, that's something new. If you've ever gotten a text from someone, text banking, you know, that's the new thing. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see how that's evolved. And some campaigns like Mike Bloomberg, you know, they did more memes in their digital program and other people do more, you know, emails or calls and, and every campaign is a little different and every district is a little different. But I do think we're going to see a lot more text banking. I do think we're going to see a lot more social media, a lot more digital. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to have to, uh, polls especially, like the whole polling industry is going to have to adapt. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's tricky. People, people can easily deny a phone call nowadays. Um, and so we're not able to reach as many people. But, you know, it's like the pandemic threw us a curveball. We've just got to adapt. So, yeah. Yeah, sorry in advance if you get like a thousand text messages from campaigns in the future, but that's what we got to do. Yeah. We've noticed that you, you've managed campaigns for candidates from Orange County, California, all the way to Virginia Beach, Virginia. Obviously, the citizens living in each of those areas come from vastly different ethnic, cultural, and socioeconomic backgrounds. How are you able to adapt your campaign skills to appeal to specific voters in each region? This is a good question. Uh, the most important thing you do before you work on any campaign is you do research on the district and you look at demographics, you look at how they voted in the past, um, you do some social listening to see, you know, what are they talking about on social media. Um, I always try to watch a candidate's speech or a town hall to see what people are caring about. And in campaigns, it's uh, that 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 is called targeting and really understanding, you know, who are the people that are going to vote for us, who's not going to vote for us. and uh, on the fundraising side, you know, we have districts that are really wealthy. We have districts that are not really wealthy. And, you know, how do we adapt to that? But the the most, you know, one of the reasons I love politics is just getting to meet people from all across America. And I was living in D.C. when I worked on the Virginia Beach race and I got to go down to Virginia Beach. And, you know, Virginia is right next to D.C., but the southern part is very, very like Southern, everybody had Southern accents and I was very thrown off by that. Um, but it was interesting because the politics of Virginia Beach were so different than the politics of the Northern part of the state. And so now I, you know, have a, have a deeper love for Virginia. Um, same thing with California, you know, it was a whole different demographic of people and the conversations we had on the phone were very different. People care about different issues. Um, and so you really have to do, you really have to do a lot of research and, uh, and try to kind of get into the mindset of the different voters um, and, and see, you know, what do they care about? What are the, what are the topics that a candidate has to, has to be promoting and what are people going to, you know, vote on in every district? It's a little bit different. So um, definitely my favorite part that was learning about the different districts and, and just seeing kind of the craziness of, of the United States and the beauty in it as well. Yeah, definitely. And so you mentioned how there was like a variety of different people and also with 
each region came a variety of different benefactors and um, fundraising strategies that you had to use. And that's not some like that's not something that we hear talked about very often. So could you maybe tell us a bit about how the fundraising aspect of campaign management works? So fundraising on campaigns, there's a couple different um, we call them buckets. And there's a candidate making calls to donors. That's just call time. You know, them, they're making connection to um, to donors, to PACs, which are political action committees, to other committees, um, other fundraising groups. You know, they they get connections to the the capital, which have, with the, the state capital or the DC, the district money. Um, and so that's kind of one area is that call time and the connections that the candidate makes. Um, we've got digital fundraising. That's you know your social media, your email program. Um, anything that's kind of that that electronic and then um you know other fundraising is just is mail is you know people reaching out and making phone calls and so every campaign is kind of a a, a you know different amounts of each of those so um when we were in virginia beach we did a lot of call time because it was a smaller district we wanted the candidate to you know get to know the donors but also to raise the name id and in uh, obviously last year we did a lot more digital, and so that was you know a lot more emails, a lot more social media presence, and the candidate did a lot more call time as well, so that he could not only you know ask people for money, but ask them how they were doing, invite them to events. You know, people were craving a little bit of connection to their candidates, and and you know having being able to talk on the phone as rare as it was because you know people don't answer the phone or for whatever reason, um, it was it was awesome to see our candidate make such good connections on that call time. And, um, and that it was a little different, you know, from district to district, how the calls went, or, you know, he made a lot more calls nationally because he was a federal candidate. So, you know, district and state candidates, um, they, they can't make as many national calls, but when you're a frontline race and we were a frontline race, and that just means that the, the big Democratic Party has decided that this is a race that is really in danger of being flipped to a red seat. And so we were a frontline race, which meant our fundraising looked a lot different. Um, we had a lot more support from the, the National Democratic Party. And, uh, and it was just, you know, there was a different urgency there. We, we were uh, kind of up against a lot more and the seat did eventually flip and we lost by like 800 votes in, in two weeks after the election. So um, the fundraising looked a lot different um, in the federal level versus the state level, but you know, it also depends on what's the district. Is it a wealthy district? Then you can make a lot more calls in that district. If it's not, you need to make a lot more calls uh, at a national level. So um, again, it, it's all about knowing your candidate and what your candidate strengths are. Um, AOC has a huge digital following, right? She, her strength is digital. Um, our candidate was amazing on, on the phone. Just everybody that talked to him walked away wanting to give money and, and have their friends give money. Um, and then we had another candidate who was really, really well known in the district. And so she held a lot of events and people came to those events and gave a lot of money so uh it's really about knowing your district and your candidate and and what people are uh what people are comfortable doing yeah definitely and um i think like i noticed that you brought up PACs as part of your fundraising um strategy and i noticed that like especially in the races that you were talking about where they're more likely to flip there's obviously more likely to be influence from PACs there and i know that um, a lot of, especially in the Gen Z community, where people are kind of encouraging um, 
like letting go of apathy from past years and kind of getting more involved in the political process, a lot of people have sentiments that like PACs may kind of um, silence their voice in a way by giving more money than say they could afford to give to their candidate. So do you feel like the personal priorities of the citizens in say Virginia Beach might have been a little like kind of silenced by the PAC donations or do you feel like PACs are beneficial and like that they help to achieve those goals? Really good question. And I think there's often a, a, a misunderstanding of what the different PACs are. So a PAC is a political action committee. And when, when you hear of like the, the dark money, the bad PACs, um, that's most often like super PACs. And PACs are also, think of like a scholarship fund. So a small company, a small business could put together a political action committee and the employees of the company could, you know, give a little bit of their paycheck and whatnot. And, and that's kind of the idea of a, of a good political action committee, the ones that people have heard about. Um, and getting money from that PAC is kind of getting an endorsement as well as the money. And that means the employees, you know, have identified the candidate as a good candidate, things like that. Now, the, the, bad, the bad actors that have kind of given a bad name to PACs are when you've got Let's take Ted Cruz because the man, Texas is going crazy right now and the man's nuts. Um, we've got a lot of instances where big money corporations are, are, are giving money to candidates indirectly. So for example, um, say I'm oil comp big evil oil company and I want to support Ted Cruz. I can't give directly to his campaign, but I can make an ad buy. And I can make I can make a mail buy. I can do something, you know. I can send a, a piece of mail calling Beto O'Rourke horrible, but it doesn't say, you know, uh, paid for by the Cruz campaign. It's, it says paid for by big evil oil company. And so that's where we've got that that idea that PACs are bad and that they are influencing campaigns in a wrong way. And it goes back to um, some of the practices, you know, from these evil guys like Roy Cohen and Roger Stone. Who, if you haven't seen the film, get me Roger Stone. He's a nut job, but it makes it helps you understand kind of the larger political fundraising operation and and where a lot of this dark money comes from. Um, now, I think the the idea of like more advocacy, absolutely yes, and and that is why you've got um, a lot of organizations who are instead of maybe donating directly to campaigns, they are staffing campaigns. They're putting people on the ground. So one of the great things, uh, we had a lot of support from the human rights campaign in the Virginia Beach race. They could have just given money, but they actually sent people down as well to help with our race. Um, and so to me, that's that's kind of what is, what is really needed and what is really special. I don't think PACs are going anywhere. Um, I think big PACs, you know, people are trying to limit them. Um, and I think the, the big evil co oil corporation, places like that, um, they are trying to legislate them, but I, I unfortunately don't think they're going away anytime soon. But I do love that more and more uh, organizations and companies are, you know, are getting involved in campaigns because they see that campaigns are really where, you know, the change is happening and getting young people involved and getting uh, staffing those campaigns has been really helpful and is, uh, is super, super important in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Having a good large staff is probably very important when it comes to deadlines because I know that political campaigns have to stay on a very strict timeline because you know they can't change the election date and stuff like that so um, deadlines show up quickly I'm assuming does that leave you with a large stressful workload and how, how do you deal with that? That's a good question. 
Um, to me, campaigns are very similar to, um, I did theater in high school and so working on a play. And it's the idea of, you know, you start with a script, you start with something blank, a candidate starts with an idea that they want to run. And you've got a certain amount of time before you have the final night, right? The election night, opening night. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of drama, there's a lot of moving parts to that. And it's partly why I love it because you are on such tight deadlines and there is so much happening on any given day. Um, you know, a news story can drop and you have to respond to it in 30 minutes. Luckily for me, I have enough staff that is that understands that that kind of knows that that's the campaign life. And I think that's what's really important on campaigns is knowing that even if your job is part time, you're probably going to be working full time because it's, you know, it's fast moving, you know, there's a lot of passion behind it. There's a lot of, you know, this is a good cause. I want to dedicate a lot of hours to this. Um, and, you know, we, we use the term campaign junkies because there are people who just love campaigns. They love that energy, that quick, you know, the deadline is coming up. Um, and it can be really scary at times because you also don't, you don't have a lot of time for trial and error, right? You don't have a lot of time to say, um, oh, you know, let's try this for two weeks and then we'll see. You don't have two weeks. You kind of have to make the decision now. Um, and to me, that's really what I loved because I do work at a strategic communications firm. And so it's a little more um, looking at the big picture of things, looking at larger narrative change, and you don't always see the results immediately. And so I like campaigns because you see the results immediately, you know? If you have a good call with a donor, you'll see the money come in immediately. If you have a good event, you'll see the money come in immediately. Um, and there's a lot more execution. And that's really why I think myself and um, my boyfriend who does campaigns, we really love that because it is, it's fast moving. There's always something happening. Um, and there's just a lot of execution and not a lot of, you know, you're not sitting in a lot of random meetings talking about random things. Um, you're really, you're executing, you're, you're getting responsibility and you're just running with it. And initiative is, is awesome and people love it. And so that to me um, is why campaigns are great and why I think it takes people who are okay with that crazy work schedule to, to work on campaigns and, and to thrive. Politics obviously involve a lot of people and with a lot of people means a lot of different opinions, especially in politics. So if you you might meet a lot of people that don't have the same opinions, how would you approach those type of situations and get those kind of conflicts resolved quickly? So I'll tell you something crazy. My boyfriend works on Republican campaigns. And yep, right. I, it's, it's, people are always a little shocked at that. Um, but I think it's a testament to the idea that we, a lot of times we have the same goal. Um, we have the same goal, but we want to get there different ways. And so, you know, a great example is he and I, we both want to keep America safe, right? Obviously. But our idea of what our military and our national security and all that stuff, it looks different. We all have the same goal of opening schools up quicker and getting the pandemic over quicker, but we're going to go about it in different ways. And to me, that, you know, we oftentimes, you know, I tell people I'm dating a Republican and their, their first thought is, oh, you're, you're dating a, you know, a crazy person. You're dating a, someone who was at the Capitol on January 6th. And I think that's really difficult because it's not the, it's not the case. And, and it's, it's our national narrative that's kind of really made things difficult. Um, but 
it's we have to we have to talk to people more. We have to understand that um, if we villainize people immediately, if we don't give ourselves a chance to actually talk to them, we're doing ourselves a disservice. We're doing them a disservice, and we actually probably have more in common than we realize. We are actually less polarized than we realize as well. My 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 firm Hadaway did a. Um, a study on how polarized are we actually? And it, we found out that we actually weren't that different, um, but this national narrative tells us that we are. And this national you know, kind of sentiment that we have in America is telling us that we have to hate the other side. We can't be friends with anyone that has a different viewpoint. And a lot of times that, um, that can, that can hurt people, you know, compromise is the only way things to get done in Congress, literally. Like, you know, it has to, that's the reason we have, uh, we have, you know, majority votes. And it's the reason we have, you know, a lot of the, the legislate, the legislation that we have is, is to foster that compromise and to foster that idea of, of bipartisanship and collaboration. Um, and I don't know, I think, you know, I have, I have younger siblings and they all the time are, you know, just perplexed at how I could possibly date someone of the opposite party. And it shocks a lot of people. And, you know, I think we, we need to talk to people a lot more than we do. We need to understand how they grew up because I grew up very conservative. I grew up in a very conservative household. And like I told you, my the first race I ever worked on was Republican. And you know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with some of my very woke, very liberal friends who grew up in liberal bubbles. Um, and they have, have kind of almost villainized me for not knowing something or for not having the same lived experiences as them. And that does not mean that I can't learn and that I'm not willing to learn and not open to learn. Um, but them kind of shutting down and saying, well, how can you not know that? Or it's 2021. How do you not know that? Um, I think that's really unfair. And I think that that's really hurtful. And I think we need to take those opportunities when people don't have the same lived experiences to have honest conversations with them and to, you know, put ourselves in uncomfortable positions. Sometimes I get called, you know, I meet Republicans in DC and they automatically call me all sorts of names and stuff. And the second we actually have a conversation and I actually explain to them, you know, these are my views and I, you know, we have an actual honest to God conversation. We remove that kind of national set, that national narrative of we have to hate each other. We have to be on opposing sides. And we realize that we probably have more things to talk about than, and more things in common than we realize. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of that was 2016 and 2020, especially. And I think it's only getting harder and we're only going to get kind of the idea that we're more and more polarized. Um, but I'm a lover of bipartisanship. I'm, I think it's the only way that we move things forward. Um, and, and, you know, also like, I, I just want to have conversations with people. I think, you know, how boring is it to only ever talk to people who have the exact same view as you? And that's, and, and on my staff, especially, I've tried to, to hire people who have very different backgrounds than myself, um, because we'll look at the same problem com two completely different ways. And, and, you know, I need that. I need someone to kind of play the devil's advocate and to give me the, the opposite view. And um, I think there's only good that can come from diversity and from having people with diverse backgrounds and political opinions and backgrounds and all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, I know I'm a little a, a little bit of an oddball in that way because again, it's it's shocking to say that, you know, a Democrat on campaigns is dating a Republican on campaigns. Um, but it happens and I think it's a, it's a good sign of what America can be, if that makes sense. Yeah, that was like a great note to end on. I think that um, it's been a common, like actually theme throughout our 
um, throughout our podcast is just promoting communication because from like a student body president to even a campaign manager on the national scale, we all agreed that like communication is what can solve a lot of our problems. So as we're wrapping up the podcast, what like final words of advice do you have to Gen Z um, citizens about how they can sort of get to that discussion, like within their own families or even like on the larger stage, because that's probably the hardest part. I would say, um, know what you don't know, because so many of us automatically assume or that we know everything or that someone else doesn't know something. We, we make so many assumptions and it can really come back to bite us in the butt. And so knowing what you don't know and being open to learning, that's, that's the other thing is so many people just, you know, we, we're alive for a really long time. If we only ever, you know, learn the stuff we learned in high school and stop learning, then we wouldn't have science. We wouldn't have so many of these things. And I call myself a progressive because I'm constantly, you know, learning and I want to, to progress. I want to learn new things. Um, and so for me, that only happens through communication with new people and, you know, open lines of communication and not being afraid to talk to people who are going to challenge me or who are going to tell me things I don't like, um, because that's life and that's growth. And we only ever grow when we're uncomfortable, I think. Um, and so having, having that communication and just, you know, being willing to talk to the, talk to the students and listen to them as well. Um, that's the other very important part about communication is the listening side. And we often just are waiting for the other person to finish so that we can get to our point and we can talk about what we're saying. But I found, especially in, in a grown-up relationship and with someone who's uh, very opposite of myself, that a lot of times we are saying the same thing and we just don't know it or we are just saying it in different ways. Um, but, you know, we have the same goal. You know, if you're student body president, you, you want to have a good student body and you want to listen to the people and you want to talk to them and, and hear from them. And I think... Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a comms professional. That's what I call myself. I work in communications and um, it's we can talk for days and days about what language and what words we use and all of that, but none of it really matters unless we are actually willing to have hard conversations and whether if we have to really listen to people as well. Um, and, and yeah, and I think, I think Gen Z is, is killing it. That's what I would say too. You know, um, I've never been so impressed and so like, renewed to, to see all these young people and to have all these hardworking young people. And, you know, people are talking about how 16 year olds shouldn't vote. And they're like, oh, I was, you know, I was a ridiculous kid doing ridiculous things when I was 16. Um, and I look like, I look at people like both of you who are not doing ridiculous things. You are doing smart and wonderful things. Um, and so keep doing that. Don't let people say that you are too young to do anything. I'm very young. People call me Mrs. Jaros and like, you know, think I'm like an older woman and it's kind of funny. Um, but, you know, it, it goes to show that if you present yourself as older and you don't let your age stop you from doing anything and you just you go for it. Um, I think I think Gen Z can literally I mean, you're going to take over the world one way and hit uh, one day, obviously. Um, but I think, you know, don't let people don't let people tell you that your age yeah, it doesn't. It really doesn't. But yeah. Yeah. Thank you both. Well, thank you, Caroline, for giving some very wonderful, insightful views. I think I personally have learned a lot just from having this conversation with you. And I'm very thankful that I got the experience to interview you. And thank you for being on our podcast. Yeah. And if I can do one last plug, um, if you are interested in politics and you want to get involved, 
Sterling Strategies. Uh, I'll, you know, you can have my email. It's, um, but you know, let me know. My my favorite thing is to mentor people and to help them from everything from how do I write this email to how do I, you know, fix my resume and, and dress for an interview, things like that. Um, it's something I really love to do because I've had wonderful mentors and wonderful people in my life, and all I all I can do is is give that back. Um, and so I really appreciate the chance to talk to both of you. I'm very impressed. Um, and I hope that I can, I can, you know, someone out there, I can help. Yeah. Hey everyone, I'm Melissa. And today we talked with a political campaign manager and we at Gen Z Speaks know that some of you listeners are interested in the political field. So here are some things that you can do to get started. One that you can do is join extracurriculars that incorporate political issues. Start small with your local government, then get involved in the voting process. Try tackling issues that are directly relevant to your status as a high school student, such as problems you see that need to be fixed in your school or community. Seek out internships and explore formal and informal types of activism. Try taking classes such as AP Economics, AP Government, and AP US History. You can also join clubs. Look for your school's debate team or criminal justice club, and if you can't find one, try starting one. If you can reach out to people in your community who are involved in politics, creating connections can always be helpful in the future. Plus, you can gain more insight on how things work. You can also sign up for programs made specifically for youth in politics. If you're interested in continuing through college, here are some possible majors that include politics. There's criminal justice, public administration, where you can work for change in the community, there's also public health, where you can help with the prevention of disease ranging from small communities to entire countries. There are also some really great resources out there for youth interested in the political field, such as Center for Civic Education. They give good lesson plans and resources that boost students' political awareness. The website Youth Leadership Initiative developed free education resources designed to assist civics teachers and encourage students to participate in the political process. Remember that almost anybody can do these things if you really want to. So if you're interested or just curious, it never hurts to try something new. That's it for me. Have a great day. That's it for this episode of Gen Z Speaks. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Visit genzeducation.org to discover everything Gen Z Education has to offer and head to the podcast page to submit your questions for our next guest. If you would like to be a future guest or would like to nominate someone, submit the interest form on our website. See you next time.